Fantastic. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit. <clears throat> Anyone thought about aviation before? You know, like flying? Really? Uh, have you thought about aviation and flying? You have, okay. You just thought about it. Okay. Uh, it's kind of one of those things. I'm a, I'm a little more uh, uh, conservative, right? I don't go whitewater rafting or some of those crazy things, especially when you're married. You think about, okay, uh, if you're going to do it, do it with your wife. Either succeed together or you go down together, right? And I think it's just kind of better to go that way. But uh, as we look at this picture here, I want you to think about a story. A story about an airplane pilot pilot who was always looking down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachian Mountains when the plane passed overhead. One day, his co-pilot asked him, what's so interesting about that spot that you always look at it as intently as you do? And the pilot replied, see that lake? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and I would fish. And every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now I look down and I wish I were fishing. (laughs) Have you been in those situations before? And can you relate to that story in some way in your life? If you were in the proverbial plane kind of flying over the landscape of your life today, would you be wishing that there were somewhere else, a greener pasture, the dream job? And maybe even watching those Hallmark specials over Christmas, the fairy tale wedding, you know where I'm coming from? Or perhaps you ponder about having something more, a lot more income and a lot fewer school bills. Maybe you've had some of those desires squashed and it has been a bitter pill to swallow. If I just had a little more of this, or my situation would be a little more like that, then, then everything would be fine. Today's lesson, what we're going to be looking at, is Christian contentment. Christian contentment. And what we want to find out today in Christian contentment is that God desires contentment for his people. God desires contentment for his people. And his word defines it not only as a virtue to desire, but we're going to see it's also a command that needs to be followed if we're to be obedient and blessed. Turn over, if you would, in your Bibles to, for now, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. I'm going to read two other passages while you're turning there, just to think and just kind of warm up our hearts a little bit to this subject, contentment. What does the Bible say about it? Well, first, in Luke 3.14, John the Baptist is speaking to the crowds, and they're telling him as he's saying, hey, repent and be baptized, uh, they're asking, well, what, 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 must, what must we do? And he tells the soldiers there as they're asking him that question. And uh, they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Be content with your income. Another passage is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. You've heard this one before. But, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And that passage you've turned to there, Hebrews 13.5, reads like this. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be what? And be what? Be content with what you have. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, you know, contentment, as God describes here, you know, is, is something pretty antithetical. It's very opposed to the spirit of our age, isn't it? We're just coming off the Christmas season, 
And basically, to be happy and content of the Christmas season is have all your wishes and, and dreams fulfilled, right? And what, what you find under that tree. Um, really, whatever you set your heart to, uh, as far as the spirit of Christmas in the secular age, uh, it, it shouldn't, you shouldn't be denied. And yet contentment, the spirit of contentment, teaches something much different. Unfortunately, the spirit of the age creeps into the church in many ways, doesn't it? In its teaching, in its philosophies. And, and although we might be able to spot it from afar, there are oftentimes it's existing in our own heart or in our own thinking without even realizing it. I think, for instance, of a health and wealth type of gospel. You know what I'm talking about, right? If God wants you to be affluent, that's what you should Pursue and a health and wealth type of mentality or doctrine says, hey, God offers it, go for it, right? God never wants you lacking in that type of false teaching or that philosophy. In other words, it's never God's will for you to be in want. It almost, it really espouses a holy, if you will, a holy dissatisfaction with life. And if you sow the right seeds, you'll reap the right windfall. You just got to do the right things and then God will open the floodgates and then your heart's desires will be fulfilled. And that's very different type of mentality in teaching from having your desires fulfilled in the scriptures. And the idea of contentment, the virtue of contentment gets at the heart of that. So what is contentment? What are we talking about here? If you go right back to the word contentment in the original language, and I'm not an expert in Greek, but you can look these up in a dictionary, it really means the, this, this right here. Contentment means to be self-sufficient. It's to be satisfied, or it's to have enough. Now, we're going to get more into that, what it means to be self-sufficient, because we're not talking here about an independence or an autonomy from God. This is all done in concert with God and his will and his providence. We'll be talking about that as we go along today. But in its bare sense, self-sufficiency, satisfaction, to have enough. Here's another way of saying it. To be free from care because of satisfaction with what is already one's own. To be free from care because of satisfaction with with what is already one's own. Anyone read the Puritans here at all or have read them before? I see a seminary student, another seminary student. Yeah, I see. Uh, Puritans aren't always easy reads, all right? It's not your daily bread. Uh, in other words, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a language and there's a, and probably even more so, there's a depth, a depth of thought it takes you through that takes time. And we like little sound bites in our age today, but boy, it's kind of nice to sit down and just think and read a sentence and ponder instead of just, I'm going to knock this thing out. And Puritans will get you in that mode if that's what you're looking for, okay? And it would be a good exercise. But there is one Puritan, uh, Jeremy Burroughs, that wrote uh, a a work um, called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. About 400 years ago, he wrote this. It's actually something I just bought off Kindle. I bought the abridged version, so it would be a little easier to read. And uh, 99 cents, and Christy and I have just started reading that together ourselves to just kind of really help us dive in to this topic a little more in our lives. And he described contentment like this. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Do you get that? This is what we're looking at today. And um, you, you look at something like that, and let's, let's take a half step back and just look at our lives. Let's look at who we are. As, you know, let's look at the nature of man and the frame we live in today in this flesh. We have a sin nature that's bent on dissatisfaction. That's the reality of where we are, where we're camped out in this body. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been redeemed from those things. You're saved from those things. You will have an eternity away from those things. But today we have a flesh that battles against the spirit and what the spirit wants to produce in us and making us more like Christ. And the spirit of that sinfulness, that sinful flesh is bent on 
a spirit of discontentment, of dissatisfaction. You remember Matthew 6, right? Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus there says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothing? Are you anxious about things? Are the things you're always and perpetually or from time to time when things get a little tough and you just you just battle with that anxiety trying to control things you can't control? It says in verse 32 of Matthew 6, it's the Gentiles that seek after all these things. It's not the type of life that God wants us to live. That's not supposed to be the nature or the course or uh, the definition of how we're to live bent on dissatisfaction. You remember Matthew 6, he says something quite different, right? Jesus says, seek the kingdom and his righteousness, and then those things will be added to you. And this discontented spirit, if it's left unchecked, it invariably leads to a, leads to a life pursuit, okay? A life pursuit to desire and acquire and to do acquiring uh, in the sense of much more than we need, and to expend an amount of energy, unnecessary energy to alter the circumstances that, that really that God has sovereignly placed in us for his purposes. That's kind of probably the area we're going to spend a lot of, more of our time today is our circumstances, especially unfavorable circumstances you might find yourselves in. I mean, real, real issues. Real, real trials, real heartaches about things that may be very noble and good desires, but either the timing is way off or it's just not something you can have now or it's just something God may not ever give you. And you ask, can I be content? How does God want me to handle that? How do I face these, these circumstances and really find a settled sense of satisfaction that God desires and commands for me? to have. Are you discontent today? Is there envy? Is there jealousy? Is there anxiety? Is there grumbling? Is there whining? Is there dissatisfaction? Is there a lack of thankfulness? Is there covetousness? If any of those are things that are just really got you on the brink, you likely are working through learning contentment. Jeremy Burroughs went on to say this about contentment. It is a box of precious ointment, very comforting and useful for troubled hearts in times of troubled conditions. He speaks about what the Bible offers when we find contentment. This should be comforting to you. If you're anxious, you're troubled, you got that spirit of discontentment, you're complaining, you're whining, you're grumbling, life doesn't have to be that way. What you need is contentment. And as Jeremy Burrow says, it's a comfort. It's an ointment. It's precious for troubled hearts in those very Circumstances. So what we want to look at today is attaining contentment. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 13, okay? Attaining contentment. We're going to look at five lessons that Paul gives us from this passage. And look at the situation Paul found himself in and how he found what he called the secret of contentment. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And we'll look at here. It's like, wow, can I find contentment with where I'm at? How do I get there if it is something that I can have? I would also like to look at the question that might be on your mind right now. Is it okay for a a Christian to pursue something better in life? Is it okay to pursue better circumstances or a better place or a better job and still be content. 
And these are the things we'll try to flesh out a little bit as we look at this passage. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I'll read through that, and then we'll kind of look at these five lessons from Paul. He says there in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the first lesson we're going to learn from Paul in attaining contentment is this. Number one, contentment is not realized by receiving more. Look there again at verses 10 and 11a, right? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, let's look at the context a little bit here. This is a prison epistle. Paul is under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. You've read the New Testament, and you've seen Paul in many difficult circumstances in the past, and this is one of them. This may very well be one of the low points, circumstantially at least, in Paul's life. He's isolated. He's lost his freedom. He has the inability to do the ministry he loves to do. He's deprived of any uh, luxury. And on top of all that, underneath it all, is the reason for his incarceration, his love for Jesus and his commitment to the gospel, right? In these circumstances, the Philippian church over in Macedonia, many miles away, they send Epaphroditus to share gifts with him. They share, uh, more than likely, they shared uh, what he would need. Money, perhaps, uh, at least like food and type of clothing, those type of things that would meet some of his real needs. And really, the whole letter of Philippians is a thank you letter. It's thanking them for their care and their concern with them. But what what's Paul talking about then when he says in verse 10, like we just read, you have revived your concern for me. Well, if you even look down to chapter 4, just a few verses down in verses 15 and 16, you'll see that they have met his needs before. It says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, there's verse 16, you sent me help for my needs once and again. They've been there before. They've met Paul's needs, but... As I study this, it, they believe, historians, that about 10 years had passed since the last time the Philippian church had actually came in and given Paul a gift, at least that we, that we know of. And I, I look at this and I'm thinking, trying to think through, okay, what, what is he saying here when he is really providing a letter of affection and thanks And yet, it's been 10 years since they had given him a gift. In my mind, it almost seems tragic, right? But you see, nowhere in here, Paul communicating displeasure or anger or regret. And he says here, but you had no opportunity. I believe he has a sincere thank you here. I don't know what he entirely means. You had no opportunity, but it may very well be. Uh, They weren't able to, in their own means, as a poor church, and maybe in many respects, he just didn't have the opportunity financially. But whatever that is, Paul is not discrediting the gift he gave them in any way. In fact, look at it again at verse 11a. Not that I am speaking of being in need. As he relates to the gift, he says, I'm not speaking of being in need. What's he saying there? He says, even before he received the gift, he was already content. He already did not have a need in his contentment for more. 
more is not what gave him the contentment. Now, let's be clear here. When we receive gifts from the Lord, we have much reason for thanksgiving, right? In fact, it's God's will for us to show gratitude and thanksgiving and, and to really have a heart of thankfulness. That is all well and good and proper. And I believe Paul has that spirit of thankfulness here as well, as we see it just bleed out through the entire letter. But what he says here about contentment was, my needs were already met. Thank you so much for this extra gift. I am so thankful. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it well. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. More is not what gives contentment. There's a way to find contentment without receiving more. If you've had the uh, interesting experience of buying a car before and going through the hunt, right? Whether you're uh, going through various websites or, 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 or the various lots around Columbus. I don't know about you, but every time I blink, there seems to be a new used car lot in I said Columbus, in, uh, in Lynchburg here. Um, we got them by our church and all down the road, and, uh, you know, they're just waiting for a, a college student uh, ready to write a check and, uh, and take one of their cars off their lots, right? And uh, when Christy and I have gone through this experience, it's not really something we look forward to, right? Because why? You go on the used car lot, and we always buy used cars. It's just what we do. Uh, you have to meet a man or a woman, and they're very interested in having you take this car and all of a sudden, you're, you're kind of their best friend, right? <laughs> and you can see it in their eyes, like, you would be just right, you know, in this yellow little Pinto uh, 1975 edition with plaid fabric uh, and a lot of exhaust coming out the back end that you can see. Um, and, you know, when you find that car that you think's right, you do your research, you want to you you know the right price and what's fair. And what do you do? When you put that first offer in for the car, you always ask for more than what it's worth, right? No, you don't do that, right? You, you, you go a little low, right? You see, hey, this is what I believe it's worth. I'm going to go a little low. Why? Because the guy who's selling the car is probably going to go ask for a little more than what it's worth. And if you ask for, if your offer's too much, you just don't have room to negotiate, right? So you ask for a little less than what it's worth, and he's asked for a little more, and hopefully you find that middle ground where you end up at a fair price. Uh, so you go in, you make your, your offer, and hey, here's uh, my low ball. And uh, perhaps you've had this happen, I know Christy and I have had before, where that low ball offer is actually accepted. And we're like, wow, praise the Lord. No, what do we think? What, do you, what would you think? Why didn't I ask for less? I, I could have gotten less for this, right? He took it so quickly, uh, I, you know, and... and Wow, Christy and I we were just bothered, bothered about something like that for like a week. We got exactly what we asked for. And yet there's that discontentment, that question, I could have had more. Right? That's discontentment. Now, it's okay to question those things. It's okay to wrestle with those things. But to camp out there and make that the thing that just it gets under your skin and defines who you are, that is discontentment. Uh, despite the blessings of receiving, and this maybe, maybe this clear, be thankful for the good gifts that God gives. But despite those blessings of receiving, more of anything is not the recipe for contentment. Okay, so that's our first point. Contentment is not realized by receiving more. Let's look at a second point here about attaining contentment. Contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Look there, verses 11 and 12. I'll read those. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, what does it say? I have learned, second time, the secret of placing plenty, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned. I have learned. What does that teach us? I have learned. It shows us that contentment takes 
time. It's not an automatic. It's not something um, that's an endless cycle of discovery for a circumstance or desire that you may have. Another way of saying it is God has a school of contentment for you and I, for those desires, for those circumstances you find ourselves in. And it's in these circumstances that Paul found himself in where God instructed him and taught him the secret of contentment. Ask yourself today, what's the school that God has me in today to teach me contentment? You know, like other Christian traits in the Christian life, other virtues, other uh, fruits of the Spirit we want to see born out, it's something we have to learn, and it's something we have to fight for. It's the sanctification process, right? It's something we strive for. It's something we labor for. And with the Spirit's help, we'll become more like Jesus. We're talking about learning right doctrine, and then we're talking about applying it properly to life's experiences. You're there in Philippians now. Just look there uh, a few pages uh, ahead there in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 through 13, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, a passage you're familiar with. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. Now, this does not mean working out your salvation in the sense of earning a right standing before God. We know it's by grace we're saved, and it's Christ's finished work that's only the only acceptable means and the only acceptable life before God by which we can be accepted. But what he's talking about here is the practical outworking of the Christian life. It is the labor, it is the striving of working out the process of becoming more like Jesus, realizing, as it says in 2.13, it is God working in you. Let's emphasize this again. Learned is past tense. I learned this. It was not an endless pursuit. Paul fought. He struggled. He struggled. Surely, he struggled. if he says he learned contentment, he struggled with a complaining heart. He struggled with displeasure, or dissatisfaction, or questions, or setting his sights on something he just couldn't have right now, his freedom. But he learned contentment. Contentment is meant to be realized or obtained in the various seasons of life or the situations like you might find yourself in today. You might look at your current job, you know, you're flipping burgers at Happy Burger down the street, right? And you're like, you know, I am getting a degree, and I would like something better someday. And I set my hopes and my, my, my target to something of a more long-term uh, landing spot. But what do I do now? I learn contentment where I'm at, and I work for his glory as I work hard for something better someday. I learn contentment today. Your GPA may have taken a dive last semester. I hope that's not the case for any of you. And you're looking at yourself and just saying, man, I'm a loser. Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I spent so much time on this, or maybe I didn't spend as much time as I should have, and I just, wow, it's just things didn't come out the way I wanted them to work. And man, you need to make this next semester something where you shoot higher, but you know what? You're in the circumstances you're in. God knows what he's doing. Learn contentment with the B's or the C's or what you might have accumulated that last semester. I'm single, and man, I want to be married. I, I, I would just love to find that right person someday. Wow, those can be very adequate desires. We went over the, uh, the marriage series as, and the dating series as Clay did, and wow, it's a, it's a great desire to want that good and proper thing that God has designed in marriage, but you know what? God wants us to learn contentment today in your singleness. 
learn it today. To learn contentment. Think about it, guys. To learn something requires time. It requires energy. It requires thought. It's a wrestling, right? It's a striving. And it's in the life experiences where we're striving and we're, we're hurting and we're stretched is where you trust God and learn that God provides. In other words, it's okay to feel the struggle. It's okay to, to feel that, that, that tension. Paul learned contentment. He had tension. He had the struggle. Don't chastise yourself for the struggle. It's what you do with the struggle that make a difference of whether you make an idol out of something to pursue that you shouldn't or you find contentment with where God has you. Some of you have heard a little bit of the story before in my pursuit of the lady I love, Miss Christie over there. Uh, when I was your age in college, uh, I saw this fair lady from afar, and as I got to know her, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to spend life together, or at least start a dating relationship and figure that all out, right? Uh, so I got up the courage, and I talked to Christy, and she said, not interested. It's like, oh, wow, well, that's a way to pour cold water on your dreams real quick, right? Uh, God was telling me, Rich, uh, welcome to Contentment 101. Here we are. Uh, man, I, 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 was, I, was, I was getting to know her as a friend, and we, you know, maybe that dating series we talked about, and I, uh, making, a fr- making a friend and finding out about her and seeing what she's all about and, and what, what's interesting to her and her love for the Lord. And it's like, this will work out perfect. There's one missing thing. She's not interested. Uh, you know, I was ready to date, and she wasn't. And from there commenced a journey for me, choosing to stick around and pursue her, a two-year journey, two years of praying, of hoping, of asking, 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 of being denied, 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 um, and really maintaining a friendship, but one that was where there was tension. I was dealing with discontentment. I wanted something I couldn't have right now, and really I wanted something I wasn't sure God would ever give me. It was a battle. It was hard. It was difficult. And man, it was during that season of learning that I learned, as I've told you at times, to pray like a psalmist, okay? What do you, when you read the psalms, what do you, what do you see? You see a, a heart, whether it's David or another psalmist, that pours out their heart to God and their lament, and they learn to trust, and they learn to obey, and they, and they have their hearts exposed for their sin, and they see their immaturity, and they see their isolation and their loneliness and their difficulty. And what do they do? They offer it up to God and trust him in ways they never would have before without the experience and learn to find the sufficiency of God. And that was me. I was a tough one. It took me two years for God to teach me contentment. And I don't regret a minute of it. I, I, would have, I wouldn't have said that then. <laughs> but now as I look back, I say, wow, God, this is what I needed. You matured me. You grown me. You, you worked in my heart. And really, I was brought to a point where I learned contentment, where it really didn't matter what direction we went in. You know, in the, in the, in the love stories, if you get the girl, you succeed. If you don't, well, you settle for the you know, beans and weenies off to the side, right? And it's just, you don't get the good stuff, the surf and turf. That's not true with contentment. God, I was satisfied with God alone. I could sincerely say that before him. I learned contentment. Now, I did get the girl, and that was God's, that was, that's God's providence, and it's hard to say now I would be satisfied either way, right? Because I have Christy as my wife, uh, and I'm very satisfied with that. But that's where God took me, no matter what direction it was at that point. Um, it wasn't just getting the girl that would satisfy me. I was satisfied with where God had me. And it's in this process, you, you too, whatever situation you find yourselves, you can learn contentment. It's not an endless pursuit. 
You don't have to settle for anxiety, grumbling, a life of dissatisfaction. You can learn contentment now. Okay? Let's keep moving along as we go here. Uh, five lessons from Paul on <clears throat> learning contentment and um, uh, learning here as well that contentment is learned. But thirdly now, contentment must be prov- must be pursued in any circumstances. And you can say this another way if you if this makes more sense. Contentment is not dependent on favorable circumstances. Okay, look there again at verse 11 and 12 in Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in what? Whatever situation I am in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in each and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, you look here in those, those, those passages there, and Paul uses a number of words to describe the ups and downs of his circumstances, right? Look there more intently. Again, remember, he's in prison and denied of the many things we enjoy from day to day. <clears throat> and you look at the good circumstances there in verse 12. He uses the word abound, facing plenty, having abundance. You know, in other words, I think Paul's teaching us here, there's a lesson in learning contentment when we have much. We're not going to camp out there today and, and, and really pursue that more, but just I think there's something to say that, you know, when we do receive something, there can be that lack of contentment, and that I would like more and more and more. And there's a, there's a lesson in contentment in properly receiving and being content with that and thankful for that gift. But look at the bad circumstances and the words he uses there in verse 12. To be brought low, to hunger, to be in need. And what Paul's saying here is he was not fixated on what he could have had or believed that he had deserved. Um, we have to think about this here. You know, if there's anything that probably, at least for me, and I believe for many of you, if I've, if I've talked with you and I, I, I pray with many of you and, I, and we go through and share life's experiences together, if there's something that's most trying here in this area of Contentment. It's those difficult and those difficult and trying circumstances, those trials, those things of being denied something that may be a very genuine and good desire, but it's just not there. It's not fulfilled. And circumstances like that can victimize us. They can steal away our contentment more than anything. And think about this. It's God's wonderful grace when he takes something away, when he has us wait, when he chooses us, chooses to withhold that good thing from us. And it's here in life's hardships that God has lovingly and providentially teach, is teaching us contentment. You remember this passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, right? <clears throat> but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned the sufficiency of Christ when he was denied what he asked for, right? And it was in that weakness, it was in that place right where God wanted him, that God taught him contentment with what he had in his weakness. Now, let's make something clear here. Contentment is not apathy. It's not apathy. It can be very acceptable to go and pursue a different career or to pursue a better education for a better future, to search for a better job, and desire to pray for marriage, uh, want a place of your own someday. Those can be very good and legitimate desires, and they're, they're in the hearts of all of us, right? But contentment relates to your state of mind where you are today. I like how it was put here by Warren Worsby. Contentment is not complacency, nor is it a false peace based on ignorance. The complacent believer is, is unconcerned about others, while the contented Christian wants to share his blessings. Contentment is not escape from the battle, 
but rather an abiding peace and confidence in the midst of the battle. This is important here. Well, we see what Warren Worsby says here. We see this so clearly in the passage here with, with Paul as he's addressing these Philippians. I mean, here he is in prison. He's denied all these things. It's been 10 years or so, and he had received a gift from the Philippians. He's not throwing a pity party. He's very thankful. He shares his whole letter of affection and, and instruction, and it's all about them. I mean, if I were in Paul's shoes, I, 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 I would just naturally want to make it all about me. But when he found contentment, what do you, how do you see that evidenced here? His, his conversation, his energy, his heart is all for them. Guys, if you're struggling with contentment today, if discontentment has its day, you'll be a very self-focused person. Discontented people are not other people focused. It's just the way it is. And an indicator in your heart today is how much am I really focused on others or am I just focused on myself? And if you're focused on yourself, it just may be your energy, your direction, your heart is just so bent on getting what you don't have today that God may be just saying, hey, today I want you to learn contentment with where you are. And when you learn contentment where you are, you start serving people where you are. You see the fallacy of living today in a place that you're not and that you desire tomorrow, a place where God may very well take you someday, but you're so fixated on it, you lose total sight of what God wants you to be doing today. Contentment puts reality to today. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But what are we going to do today? We're going to serve the Lord. And that happens when we're other people focused. Now, let's be clear here, too. We're never commanded to be content with sin. That's not something where we can say, well, I will always struggle with this area, so I'll just be content with that. No, that's not what we're saying here. The sinful flesh, the sinful uh, world we live in, those are realities that we accept. But contentment is never a godly response to sin. It's only confession and repentance, right? So we continually evaluate our lives through the filter of God's word, identify sin, and mortify it, and find contentment God's way. Well, let's keep moving along here. Attaining contentment, five lessons from Paul. It's not realized by receiving more. Contentment is learned. And it must be pursued in any circumstance. And then fourthly, contentment is accomplished through Christ's strength. Through Christ's strength. Look there at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it can be very easy to go take this passage and start taking it places where it doesn't belong, right? It's, it's an easy verse to memorize, and it just seems very empowering, Right to take this verse, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's not saying there isn't anything I set my heart or mind on that God won't bless or empower me to do. You know, God's just not going to put any blessing on any plan I've got or anything I want to do, and he's kind of obligated to follow it and empower me to do it because he's promised to do so. But as with any verse or passage in Scripture, we have to understand its meaning when we look at the context. And really, this verse is a progression of what we've seen in verses 11 and 12, right? In verses 10, 11, and 12. And we look at that content. It's a progression of thought of, Paul, of Paul's statements about contentment. I can do all these things, yea, even be in prison and find contentment through Christ who strengthens me. Think it through. If you're like me and you're facing difficulty, you're facing trial, or facing hardship, there, there just isn't easy answers. If there was, it wouldn't be a trial, would it? If there was a silver bullet, the second after you realize you're in a trial, it wouldn't be a trial. There's difficulty. There's, 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 there's striving. There's, there's, there's trying to figure things out. There's learning to pray and there's learning to trust and there's learning to go to God's word and, and you're finding counsel and you're just, you're just working through these things, right? And I'm tempted to believe when I face that trial that God's just not involved in it. It's outside his view. It's outside his care. It's outside his concern. I want to, I want to believe that my situation is somehow an exception to what God is just doing for everybody else. 
when really he has you right where he wants you. But you know, when I, when I start viewing my circumstances outside God's realm of attention and view and care for me, my discontentment in that midst of difficulty leads me to a place where I start attempting to take things into my own hands. There's something I have to do to change the game. I have to manipulate it somehow. I have to change things in my favor. And what we end up doing in doing that is we end up forfeiting the strength that God promises in verse, thing, in verse 13 to do all things in him who strengthens you. Does contentment seem too hard to attain? It is because it requires Christ's strength. And when you're weak, you'll be found in the strength that Christ provides. Look how John MacArthur put it here. You'll learn contentment when you've stood in the valley of the shadow of death, when you've been at the brink, when you can't resolve your problems, when you can't eliminate the conflict, when you can't fix your marriage, when you can't do anything about the kids, when you can't change your work environment, when you're unable to fight the disease that's racking your body. That's when you'll turn to God and find the strength to get through a situation. Don't miss this, guys. Philippians 4.13 is very encouraging news. If you're at the end of yourself in a situation that you know so intimately yourself, be assured of this. This promise of verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is for you. It's his strength. It cannot fail. You can find contentment through his promises, through his supernatural strength. And I can find contentment with that through his divine strength and enabling. Resting in the assurance that God is doing all things well is really where we go to our last point. In attaining contentment, lesson number five from Paul is this. Contentment is realized when I trust in God's providential care. When I trust in God's providential care. Now, you look at the passage here, um, and we think about, well, let's think about providence. Providence is the understanding that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that fulfills all his purposes. You can go to a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Providence, God's sovereignty, working out everything according to the counsel of his will. And when we go to contentment, Christian contentment, It cannot be realized. Let me emphasize that. You cannot realize Christian contentment without a knowledge and a belief in God's providence and working in your life for your good and for his glory. In other words, truly believing that God orchestrates everything, yes, even those circumstances that are so difficult and trying for you today, in everything to accomplish his good and holy purposes in you. Contentment is resigning yourself and humbling yourself and posturing yourself to the God of sovereignty and providence and love for me and just saying, I will be content with what you're doing here, Lord, and I'm just going to stop fighting. Contentment in the providence. Now, we talk about contentment here. We're not talking about fatalism. We just kind of lift up our hands and, well, God's in control, so it doesn't matter. We'll just kind of let things go and I can just be apathetic about the whole thing and who cares? No. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is working his will and his good pleasure in us. We believe promises like Romans 8, 28, where God is working through all things for his good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I like what A.W. Pink said here. Contentment is the product of a heart 
resting in God. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is, even now, making all things work together for my ultimate good. Doesn't that just sound peaceful, restful, not to strive and, and push back and complain and, and, and really in many ways just stick our finger up against God? You know, when we complain, you know, when we resist God, it's, it's really, it's a complaint against God and, and, it's, and it's, it's sin to complain and whine and gripe about those circumstances. But boy, the, when, when we go through the, the school of, con, of learning contentment, we learn that, you know, God has my best interest in mind. These circumstances are not an accident. These circumstances may have come by any number of reasons or evil purposes by other individuals, and yet I believe in the providence of God who knows what he's doing, and I will rest in that and find contentment. I thought maybe one way to to close here is to read something from another Puritan in the Valley of Vision. It's a book of prayers from the Puritans, and this is a prayer on contentment. Let me just read that as we close. I think it's a fitting prayer. Uh, there will be several slides here that really captures the ens- essence of where our hearts need to be if we want to find contentment and realize it in the place where you are today. Heavenly Father, I, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, make my heart prize thy love. Know it, be constrained by it. Though I be denied all blessings, it is thy mercy to afflict and try me with wants. For by these trials I see my sins and desire severance from them. Let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, temptations, if I can thereby feel sin as the greatest evil, and be delivered from it with gratitude to thee, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. When thy son Jesus came into my soul instead of sin, he became more dear to me than sin had formerly been. His kindly rule replaced sin's tyranny. Teach me to believe that if I ever would have any sin subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, I must invite Christ to abide in the place of it. And he must become to me more than, than vile lust had been, that his sweetness, power, life may be there. Thus I must seek a grace from his contrary, from him contrary to sin, but must not claim it apart from himself. When I am afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that in myself I am a dying, condemned wretch, but in Christ I am reconciled and live that in myself I find insufficiency and no rest, but in Christ there is satisfaction and peace, that in myself I am feeble and unable to do good, but in Christ I have ability to do all things. Though now I have his graces in part, I shall shortly have them perfectly in that state where thou wilt show thyself fully reconciled and alone sufficient, efficient, loving me completely, with sin abolished, O Lord, hasten that day. May this be the prayer of your heart as I'm trying to make it one of mine as we learn and are on the journey of learning contentment and realizing where you're at today. May God bless you.